Well, hello there. Welcome to Journey Through the Epistles with Daniel Babalola. I am Daniel Babalola and I'm inviting you on a journey as we study the epistles in the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I believe that a solid understanding of what is contained in the epistles would serve as a strong foundation for all our Christian expression. And not just that, that when we take the words of the apostles and properly understand them in their context as they meant it to be understood, our entire Christian experience stands the chance of being so much more flourishing. So join me on this journey. Let's go. Dear Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for another Saturday morning, another opportunity we get to study, to learn, to grow by your word. Thank you for all we've learned so far um, through 2 Corinthians. Thank you for the revelation of who you are, the revelation of what you have done in Christ and the responsibility it places upon us as ministers of the gospel. I pray that even as we take yet another step further into your word, that the truth of your word rings true in our hearts. I pray that there is clarity and there is grace to act on everything we have heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, hope we're doing well. Uh, if you've been here for the past few teachings, you would notice that we're back to our normal setup. <laughs> so holiday is over. <laughs> it's back to back to work. Um, but I hope we're doing well. I hope we're enjoying um, the cooling of the weather for those that are in this part of the world. <laughs> uh, it's been a hot summer and I'm grateful for for that change. That is about to start. Uh, what else? I hope everyone listened to my announcements last week, last morning. If you did not hear my announcements, I will not say it again. <laughs> um, I give some updates about my marital status. So if you did not listen, you can listen to that one. I shall not repeat it. <laughs> anyways, anyways, anyways. Okay. Time to be serious. Um Welcome to Journey Through the Epistles, specifically Journey Through 2 Corinthians part 11, right? Uh, I joked last week, as I always joke, that you would assume that because we're in part 11, we would be in chapter 11, or at least chapter 6 at best. I am sorry to tell you that that is not the case. Um, we are <laughs> still in chapter 5. And we are not regretting any minute of it. I hope that's the case. Uh, even if it's not. Just like Paul said, the love of Christ compels me. I cannot teach any faster than I am currently teaching. <laughs> but um, I hope we've enjoyed these past 11 weeks of teaching. Um, and the emphasis and the, I don't know the word I'm looking for, maybe the personal touch that Paul brings into this letter what it means to be a minister of the gospel, what it means to be an ambassador for Christ and the various facets of what that looks like, even to an audience that does not rate you. Um, we've talked about a lot of things. Last week, for instance, we spent time from pretty much from verse 10-ish 
to verse 14. Um, and we we emphasized a lot of things that if you haven't listened to last week's teaching, I strongly recommend. We talked about learning the balance of knowing God and how um, just like with everything, balance is everything in its right amount. It's it's one thing to say, oh, I eat my carbs, but then are you eating your protein? Are you getting multivitamins, I'm sorry, vitamins, minerals, um, fiber, and stuff like that? And we should be careful of not making one aspect of truth the entire aspect of truth. And so what does that look like from 2 Corinthians 5? It's one thing to talk about the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. They are all true. But if you neglect his justice, the coming judgment, then you've missed out on a key attribute of God. And so we just talked about it from verse 11 where Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I explained what the fear of the Lord means in that passage. It's not a fear that God is unpredictable and at any point in time, he can just ghost me. Imagine if God should ghost you. <laughs> or he can just change it for me. Right? No. We talked about what this referred to was God judging, rightfully judging evil at the end of the age. And Paul, that's what Paul is describing, that because we know God is just. It's the same thing Abraham said. The, isn't God just? He will do what is right. It's a good thing to know. It's, I mean, everyone feels safer in a country that you know, okay, the legal system works. Or I know that, oh, the police are actively doing what they're supposed to do. So justice for good people is a good thing. The problem is human beings are not good. I think it was Paul Washer that said the scariest truth of the Bible is that God is good. Because if he is good, then what does he do with someone like me? All right. And so that's what Paul is reflecting on, that I know God is just. I know God will not allow murder, rape, um, genocide to go, to, to go scot-free. I know that in eternity, these actions will be accounted for. And some of us, we run. We're like, yes, Hitler deserves to be judged. This rapist, the drunk driver that killed my dad, I'm glad there is justice or the 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 evil person that that lied against me, ruined my reputation, cost me my job. I'm glad there is recompense. But what about you? What about those thoughts you've had against your neighbor? What about those those conversations you've had in private about that person you didn't like? What about the times you've 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 been proud? or you've looked down on someone because they weren't as rich or as eloquent or as attractive or whatever as you were, shouldn't God also judge that? Or is it just murder? Anything, adultery and above, God should judge. But anything that's like, ah, you know, it, it happens, right? And so if we expect God to judge injustice, to judge child trafficking, to judge murder, to judge abuse, to judge genocide, then we ex we should know that he will judge lies. He will judge pride. He will judge greed, right? He will judge idolatry, things you have put above him. The times you've neglected your family to be, to, to, to pursue your own, like to focus on yourself. The time you've, you've been selfish, 
the times you've you've not been as generous as you should have been, the times we've been unkind, the times we've been hypocritical, he will judge that too. And that's what Paul is reflecting on, that I know the grace of God, I know the love of God, but I also know the justice of God. And knowing that is a motivation to also encourage people. We read the book of Acts in um, Acts 17, that God has appointed a day that he will judge the world in righteousness. And he has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. So we know that death does not get you free. And so that's what Paul is reflecting on. We talked about that balance, that it's important to hold those two truths in your mind. The goodness, the mercy, and the love of God for his justice as well. We talked about learning to, to, to reflect or to... to set up a framework in our minds where we can judge people beyond appearance. That was verse 12. And I asked that question that as a believer, if God asked you to appoint the next king of Israel, would you be like Samuel and say, ah, he's the tallest, he's the strongest, this is my leader? Or would you be like God that is able to see beyond the physical and look into the hearts of people? We talked about that that do not let the world define your value system. The world rallies around wealth, around beauty, around, around fame, popularity, for some of these things not in themselves wrong, but the way it is celebrated and the way it's pursued is where it's twisted. I've talked about that many times as well, how many times our desires are not wrong in and of themselves, but they ultimately end up being perverted beauty is from god i hope we realize that like god made the world to be beautiful every time you look at a garden and like wow or you look at nature or you look at the mountains you see people paying ridiculous amounts of money to live by the ocean to live with they say oh it has an amazing view what is that view it's god that gave that created beauty it is god that put in us an appreciation for beauty so don't get me wrong a, a desire for beauty is not a bad thing. The same thing with, with, with wealth or, or being able to do stuff, ability. It's not in, it, in and of itself a bad thing. But when the scales are tipped, when we pursue these things outside God, it always ends up bad. And so we live in a world where the world celebrates what God does not celebrate. I hope that's clear. I don't have to spend the next 30 minutes trying to prove that point. And what Paul is saying in verse 12 is that same thing, that you have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. We are not those who boast in appearance. If you are telling me about your experience in your church for the past one year, I hope to God that what matters most to you has not been the, the quality of the sound or the fragrance that the, the, the cold wind that invites you as you walk in or how the chair can be reclined and you're like, wow, what a church. If that's your mindset, you're not different from the people that Paul had issues with in Corinth. And I explained last week, they are not bad. But as far as priority goes, we are people who boast first in the heart. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that today. The next thing we talked about last week was the idea of identity. What it means to lose yourself in God. 
Because in verse 13, he said it, that if we are considered mad, it is for God. If we are considered to be sound, it is for your benefit. That sense that there would always be people on both sides in evaluating whatever decision you make. If you choose to follow God, there will be those that would scorn and mock and ridicule every decision you make along the way. And then there will always, there would also be those that would recognize value and appreciate that decision. Similarly, if you choose not to follow God, there will be those that will celebrate that decision that yes, you made the right choice. You chose this over this. That is good. And there would also be those that be like, are you sure? The question is, or what we should, what we should keep in our hearts is who exactly are we living for? Are we living for the opinions of men? Oh, I don't want to look a certain way. Are we still trying to, like Adam and Eve, put on those fig leaves so that the other person doesn't see my nakedness? Or are we comfortable in our identity as believers? Again, it is something that will do you a lot more good to reflect on personally than any stretch of teaching ever would. And if you haven't listened, I beg you to listen to last week's teaching. Again, be willing to lose yourself. There is nobody, nobody that did anything for God in biblical records, in historical records, that at some point or the other did not get to a place where they were willing to lose their identity to follow God. And from last week, it's easy to get to a point where you, we're talking about losing yourself in God, losing, um, being like, oh, I'm dead, I'm now in Christ. And we almost instinctively associate that with, oh, I have to give up career or I have to be poor or I have to suffer in an austere way. We almost always translate it to be that way. And I just want to make it clear that it's not as it's not much in the external expression of, of what it means to lose yourself as it is a state of heart. While yes, more often than not, okay, we see Peter and John giving up their fishing business, Elijah, sorry, Elisha leaving his family to, to take care of God's servants. We see um who else? Right? I don't know. People in history, they're like, oh, I had to give up this. I had to give up that. I had to give up this. Very common. Yes, Paul giving up his um, rep, um, his reputation, his status in society, pretty much every Christian in the early church actually doing all that to follow God. But then we also have, maybe not as much, but there are examples of people who had to choose influence to represent God. And so we have Daniel being in the king's palace, serving four, yeah, I think four different kings and standing out for the gospel. Of course, even in that capacity, he was attacked. He was, he was, he was set up so many times, but it was necessary that he was in that position to make the name of God known on that scale. The same thing with Esther, the same thing with Joseph. And so it's not a thing of, Oh, I'm poor, therefore I'm following God. Or, oh, I resigned, therefore I'm following God. Not necessarily. At the end of the day, what matters is motivation. Because as you go on in life, you would start to realize, both in your own heart and in the hearts of people, that two people can do the exact same thing. 
for different motives. Two people can pursue ministry on a global scale. One person is driven by, I want to be big. Another person is driven by the gospel needs to reach all men. And it would, you would see similar, similar ambition, similar strides, similar efforts, in quotes, sleepless nights, laboring, trying to get all these things in order. But it's different motivations driving them. And many times, it's only in eternity, it's only God that is able to discern the motives of the heart. The same thing, you'd see two people pursuing career or pursuing influence or whatever and one person is driven by there's just that conviction that god is using me to do something in this space another person is just driven by self and personal ambition the same thing daniel was not the only hebrew boy in babylon right it could have been there could have been other guys also from israel who had no interest in representing Yahweh, in standing and defending Yahweh. So much so that why is it Daniel that gets picked on to not to not pray to any other person? Why is it the Hebrew boys that get picked on to not bow? It means there were other, other Hebrew people in the courts that also did the same thing. And so two of them could be like, oh, we're both, uh, we're both um, in, in politics. But the motives are very different. And so the, the emphasis of last week's exhortation, charge, teaching, whatever you want to call it, is first and foremost to check, sit down with yourself and be honest with your motivations. What are you living for? What is driving your choices? What is driving your ambition? Are you living for Christ? Are you consciously building a life that will count for Christ, whatever that looks like. For some, it could be taking steps back from career. From some, it would be taking steps forward in career. Again, the emphasis is not the expression. It starts from the motive. For some, it would be moving to wealthier parts of the world. For others, it would be moving to poorer parts of the world. Again, it's not the expression. It starts from the heart. Because when we stand before God, that is what will be judged. What was the state of your heart? What was the state of your heart? Have you ever sat down with God and said, God, what would you have me do with my life? I have all these plans. I have all these things I can do well. I have all these things I would like to do. What would you have me do with my life? And not take any decision until there's some form of clarity in that regard. Again, focus first on your motivation before you even start to look at the expression, God, you want me to resign or not? Before you even start asking such questions, where is your heart? What are you living for? Again, that is the emphasis of the rest of the chapter, actually. And I talked about that because of the context. So when we say, if any man is a new creature, is in Christ, is a new, we say, oh, I'm a new creature. Are you really a new creature? Are you really? Maybe yes, in the spirit. But are you living like a new creature? And this is where it starts. Again, I will talk about it as the teaching goes on. So those were some of the things we talked about last week. And if you haven't listened, I beg you, please find time to check it out. Okay? Um, 
And then we ended in verse 14. We said, the love of Christ compels us because we judge that if one died for all, then all died. The love of Christ compels us. In verse 11, the terror of God persuaded them. In verse 14, the love of Christ persuaded them. And I talk, we've talked about that balance and all of that. But it's, it's important whenever we talk about, I, maybe personally for me, I don't know if it's happened to you before. When I started to do a lot more studying of the Bible, whenever I saw that phrase, the love of Christ compels us, right? A question always came up in my mind. Is it God's love or Christ's love for me? Or is it my love for him? I don't know if you're, I'm the only one that's ever thought about, like, what does that phrase, the love of Christ, mean? Is it that I love God so much, I am compelled to do this? Or is it that God loves me so much, I am compelled to do this? And then it's, if it's the latter, which is if it's God's love for me, how does God's love for me compel me to do something? Does, does that make sense what I'm trying to say? So, for instance, we read the phrase about the love of Christ in Romans 8 as well. Paul is reflecting and he's like, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall famine, shall nakedness, peril, sword, and all those horrible things he mentions. And again, you're thinking, when he says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is he saying, what will make me to stop loving God? Or is he saying, what will make God to stop loving me? <laughs> right? Whichever way, you can still play it into the context. And I will get there. Like Daisy said, one of the beautiful things about growing in the word of God is that you realize that a lot of things are not either or as much as they are both and. <laughs> but anyways, let's go on. Um, so that's the love of Christ. Another place, I think it's in, sorry, let me pull up my notes real quick. Um, Ephesians, I believe it was Ephesians, but let me confirm. Yes, Ephesians 3, it says, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So is it that I should know how much I love God or I should know how much God loves me? Of course, now you're starting to see there's an answer, but the answer is not exactly, it doesn't fit nicely into some of the context. So for instance, in Ephesians 3 verse 19, if you haven't already, I hope you're already taking notes. Well, you can always access the recording. In Ephesians 3 verse 19, Paul is praying. He says that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the, width, the length, the depth, the height, and that you may know the love of Christ. I think it's fairly clear that is that you may know how much Christ loves you. Even the grammatical phrase in the love of Christ, that you may know how much Christ loves you. But then, if that's the if that's the answer or the simple answer, oh, what's the love of Christ? Christ's love for me. What does that mean for Romans? When Paul says, "What shall separate us?" and that's where my my um, search into this question started. I remember I was studying for Romans. Was it my final year in college? And I'm like, okay, if the love of Christ is Christ's love for me, when Paul says, "What shall separate us from the love of Christ?" Shall tribulation, distress, persecution. And it's like, what does that mean? So, like, if it's God's love for me, of course, my suffering will not affect God's love. I'm suffering because of him. Why will my suffering 
separate me from the love of Christ. Am I making sense? I hope I'm not losing anyone. Storms up people with me. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to. I want to drive home my very important point, but this is the layup. We're understanding, right? You can see why it's a bit tricky, right? If the love of Christ is Christ's love for me, then why is Paul saying, shall tribulation, distress, and persecution, famine, nakedness, separate? It should not have anything to do. If anything, it will affect my love for him. But that's not what the phrase, I think it means. So what is going on? Same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ compels me. And you're like, okay, I can understand that a bit. But why will I do stuff just because the person loves me if I don't love the person in return? Many of us, especially the women in our group, <laughs> are no strangers to a guy liking them. But because he likes you or he claims he loves you, it, if it's not reciprocal, it doesn't do anything. Like, have you ever said, oh my God, this guy likes me, so let me just, well, hopefully you haven't. Relationship advice 101. Do not enter a relationship because you feel guilty that the person loves you. All right? But have you, ever, you like, typically, you wouldn't say, oh my God, he loves me so much, I have to do this. I... I grudgingly have to date him. No, not necessarily. And so we're left with that same question. If it's about God's love for us, why is Paul talking about separation? Why is Paul talking about it being such a compelling factor? Almost as though it would make more sense if he's talking about our love for him. Do we get the dilemma I'm trying to paint here? And that is when it jumped on me. <laughs> what the phrase means in both Romans and 2 Corinthians 5. Am I making sense? So I hope I'm not sounding like, okay, I'm following, but I'm not following. All right. So what does, what does that phrase in this context mean? It means the same thing it actually means in Ephesians. When Paul refers to that phrase, the love of Christ having a compelling effect on me or nothing separating me from the love of Christ. He's describing or he's referring to our understanding or our awareness of his love for us. Because at the end of the day, the love of Christ is the same for everyone. For God so loved the world, right? God loves me just as much as he loves you. God loves me just as much as he loves the murderer that ran down the street. He loves us the same. But why is it that the love of Christ can compel Paul, but it's not compelling a sinner? Why is it that the love of Christ can compel Paul to this extent, but it doesn't even compel other believers in the Corinthian church, both in Christ. That is the answer is in Ephesians that we just read, that you may know the love of Christ. The reason it's compelling to Paul, and it's not as compelling, maybe to, I mean, to me, definitely. I believe Paul is more compelled by Paul, by Christ's love than I have ever reached, right? By God's grace, we'll get there. Is that understanding, that awareness. 
which is why it was such a big prayer for Paul in the Ephesian church that you may know the love of Christ. That you may know the love of Christ. So when he's saying in Romans 8, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's saying, what can happen to me that will make me question God's love for me? What can happen to me that will somehow make me less aware of the fact that God loves me? That's what he's trying to say. And so the question or the application therein is how many times do you ask yourself, how much of Christ's love do I retain in my mind? How aware on a day-to-day basis? Because when you check your life, that's what you start to see, that that's what happens. The times, there are times where you just, you are not as aware of the fact that God loves you. Maybe you are going through a hard time. What is happening there? You are losing sight of the love of Christ. But suddenly, let's say, a, a testimony comes, the answer is there. You now remember, oh yes, he actually does love me. And so, we are in our, many of us, many believers, we, we, we are in a position where the love of Christ is determined by external circumstances, which is why Paul says what he said in Romans 8. What shall separate me? It can't be external circumstances because he has proven his love for me once and for all. And so my day-to-day experiences may not always make me feel like Christ loves me. But I know he does. I know he does. And so that's the question. How much of God's love for me do I retain on a day-to-day basis? How much of God's love for me do I keep in my heart, regardless of what goes on outside? Oh, I just lost my job. The love of Christ. Oh, a loved one just died. The love of Christ. And I don't perceive that love any different when, oh, I just got promoted. It's still the love of Christ. Oh, I just, I just what? I just had a new child. I just got married. Still the love of Christ. Where it's no longer determined by experiences, positive or negative, the love of Christ has gotten to a point where it is constant in my heart. That's what Paul is describing. That's the challenge or the goal or what we've been urged to as believers, to be a people that are motivated by the love of Christ regardless of what we see. Regardless of what we see. Because at the end of the day, if you think about it, like as we are listening or seated or stand wherever you are right now, you know mentally, right that god's love is constant like we know that god loves us he can't love us any more than he already does think about that like whatever the limit of love is god loves us fully totally completely and so then the question is those times that i'm doubting the love of god is it that he actually loves me less no is that for whatever reason my awareness of his love has decreased. My awareness of his love has decreased. And so the question then is, or the the charge to you is, how can I live a life where regardless of what happens, I am always aware of the love of God? That's the question. That's what Paul is communicating in Romans. 
communicating in Ephesians and what he is explaining as a reason for his actions here in 2 Corinthians. The love of Christ compels us. We know how much he loves us. We've seen his love. He says, because we judge, if one died for all, all died. And so whenever I find myself doubting God's love for me, I look to the cross. He's already given it all. I have no reason to doubt his love. He's given it all. He's done the, the, the hardest display of love why should I doubt? And that's what he was saying in Romans 8. That if he did not spare his only son, why won't he with him, with him, freely give us all things? The hardest one, he gave it all. Why wouldn't he keep me, preserve me, glorify me? It's a mindset to build. Because again, like I said, Christ's love is not going anywhere. What makes Paul different from me what makes me different from an unbeliever that is living their lives in defiance to God? How aware we are of that love. How aware we are of that love. And so let it be that prayer. Let it be that goal that God let my perception, my awareness, and my reception of your love be tied to the cross and the cross alone. Let it not be tied to my mood swings on a day-to-day -day period. Let it not be tied to the events that happen in my life. Because good times will come, bad times will come. I can't let my perception of your love for me be tied to the events. Because on the days where I feel like God does not love me as much, I will not love him as much. But if it's tied to something fixed and immovable, something that has been proven once and for all, then I would find the strength to keep on going. Because I know that nothing about my situation means that God loves me any less does that make sense thumbs up if we we understand what i've just said very important it's it's i might not spend as much time as i possibly could on this but it's so important so important awesome 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 someone has a question um, is it possible to, we can't, is it, if it's related, okay, let, let's take the question now, actually. Or is it a pointer? I'm not sure. Okay, if it's a question, you can put it in the chat or make yourself, or if it's a, I'm following, then that's fine as well. Okay, awesome. So yes, that's what the love of Christ refers to. And so he's saying that we are so aware, we are so, so full of that consciousness that God loves us. Of course, it assumes the reciprocal um, um, part of this as well, that we love him, but more so, we know how much he loves us. And that is what drives us. That's what drives us. Because we see that if he died for all, then all of us died. Which brings us to the next part of this teaching, verse 15. Very popular verse. Many of you can probably quote this by heart already. It says, He died for all, that those who live should, no, should live no longer for themselves, 
but for him who died for them and rose again. I'll read that verse again. He died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So Paul is describing humanity. And everything is so intertwined that me breaking it in verses is actually not doing a good job. But let's see. Let me read verse 16. (laughs) This is where contextual reading comes in. So, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge that if one died for all, all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. What is Paul talking about? What is Paul talking about? First things first, I'm going to comment a lot on these couple verses, so there's no particular order. Just take note, right? Um, He's reflecting on all of humanity. And he's saying that everyone has died in Christ. Very important. Saved and unsaved. Everyone has died in Christ or Christ died for them. First things first. But then he says that those who live, meaning that there are those who died in Christ, but are not living in Christ. We're going to explain that when he talks about the new creation and all of that. There are those who Christ died for that are not alive. Who are those that live? They are those who have received the death of Christ. And in receiving his death, by extension, you receive his death and resurrection from the dead. And so he's saying that those who live, who have received this death of Christ, should live no longer for themselves, but they live for someone that died and rose again. They live for someone that died and rose again. So now let's let's um let's let's unpack some of these these phrases. He says the love of Christ. I've explained what that means. It compels us. I explained in the Greek. It's literally as though you are arrested. It's the word to hold together, to constrain, or to even arrest, like a prisoner, to put your hands together. So the love of Christ, it just drives. I have no choice. I'm motivated by the love of Christ. And it says we judge. This is how we view the world. That if one person died for everyone, then everybody has died in him. And that we who have believed and received this, remember that's what the whole idea of the love of Christ is. My awareness and my reception of his love for me. We who have received this should no longer I like that phrase, should no longer. Should. It's a sad phrase. Why? Because not everyone does. Everyone who lives in Christ should not live for themselves. Unfortunately, we still have people, even I myself, and I'm sure for every, pretty much everyone, there are days where you find yourself living for yourself should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What Paul is saying makes sense on a logical level. 
unfortunately, it's very hard. Without the Spirit of God, it's very hard to, to, to capture or to express on a practical level. I, I talked about this, I think that was two teachings ago, where I was saying it that I gave, well, I didn't express extensively say that, but think about the analogy of someone literally dying for your mess up. I think when I was in secondary school, we watched a short movie clip, or we were told this story. I'm sure many of you have probably heard it before. Like if you had a twin brother, right? Or there were two twins. I think the story goes thus. I might I might tweak the story as I remember. But there were two brothers, twins. One was responsible, had a wife and kids. Responsible member of society. The other, irresponsible, a nuisance, and a thief. And then one day, he finally stole something and was caught. And so the entire village was chasing after him. We are going to kill you. We're going to burn your life. Jungle justice. You are a thief. <laughs> Ole Barao will pour petrol on you and will burn you. I think I've seen that thing happen like once in my life. I was so horrified. <laughs> but he's running. He's running. They are chasing him. He jumps into his brother's house. And then his brother is there. His brother's like, what's going on? How far? It's like they are coming to kill me. That I, I'm sorry, I did this. I shouldn't have. I regret my decisions. And then this twin brother says, "You know what? Don't worry. I love you." And he's like, "What are you going to do? What are you going to do?" He said, "Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll handle it. I'll handle it." And then he goes outside. And then the villagers miss. They they think he's the twin, and then they kill him. If the, if the younger twin or the other twin is in his right faculties, how should he respond to such a sacrifice? Of course, from that day henceforth, he should stop stealing for starters. That's the bare minimum. Next thing, he should find a way to be employed profitably and must do all in his capacity to take care of his dead brother's wife and children. That's, that is what's by instinct, we would expect your response to that sacrifice to be. That's what Paul is saying. That someone died for you. Has it occurred to you that someone actually died for you? You are that twin brother. Someone took your place. Paul is saying, if you are aware of it, which is what I, why it took time to explain what the love of Christ is, if you recognize that love, you should it should stir you up to live in a certain way. So much so that if we see a believer acting weird, engaging with the world, we should it, the 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 diagnosis is clear. They don't know how much God loves them, or they haven't come to a place where they've really understood what it means that someone died for them. In the words of Second Peter, you can turn there quickly. 2 Peter 1 verse 9. I love the way Peter phrases this. He says, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his sins. He has forgotten. You are short-sighted. You've forgotten. Or, we've, we've, or you, you hear about the story. Um, well, not the story. It's, I, I talked about this as well. Now I said 2 Peter 1 verse 9. 2 Peter 1 verse 9. Right? And I, I shared the story as well that 
It's the same thing that happens when we watched the Passion of Christ growing up, right? We're all there. I remember for me, I was there in secondary school. It was a church event, I think Friday night. So all of us from our boarding house, we went there in the church and then they started to play the Passion of Christ. And then you see bloody Jesus carrying that cross. You see him being flogged and there's that scene that everyone, if you've ever watched The Passion of Christ consciously, there's that scene you will never forget where they whipped him. He got stuck on his side and then they pulled it off. And he's like, oh my God. And then he's lying on that cross. And you see when they set the news, like we must not miss. And they hit it. And you're, you can literally feel like if a nail was going through me, how painful. Or through his legs. Do you know how thick your legs? And they put, oh my gosh. And you see the bloodiness. You see, you see when he turns that and he looks at his mom. And you can feel the weight of all that suffering. And can I let you know that the physical suffering was the least of what he did for you. More so taking on this. We're going to get there in verse 20 and 21. Taking on the sin of the world. The guilt, the shame. And we all watch that and the room is quiet. The room is quiet. And I, I, I talked about this, that as I grew older in my faith, I started to realize that it wasn't a thing of, oh, we were not truly saved. That's why um, our conversion experience did not last. I talked about that, that no, the reason it even had an effect on us in the first place is because we realized that this person actually did this thing for us. We, we were aware of his death for us we are aware of his love for us but what happened what why is it that at the moment of watching that movie we are quiet people are even crying bodies in our class they are crying they give an altar call everybody runs out one week two weeks nobody says anything bad in school no one uses the f word no one is trying to to do anything funny anything sexual we're all trying to be good people and then someone snaps. <laughs> and then a few, a month later, two months later, it's as though we've not watched anything. We're back to our normal, depraved self. Why? Is it because we're not truly saved? I don't think so. Because on a mental level, we did believe that Jesus died for us. That's the reason he had an effect on us. If we did not believe that, we'd be like, oh, wow. Why did he have to suffer? Say, so he did for me. Eh? Did I send him? That would be, <laughs> that would be your response. Disgusting as it is. That's what you expect from someone who does not believe Jesus died for them. It would just be a story of someone being tortured. But the reason it was, it had such a lasting effect that it changed our actions, even as young as we were, was because somewhere in our minds, thank God for our parents. We might not have known the full gospel, we might not have known about righteousness by faith, but we at least believed that this person died for me. That's why it had such a lasting impact. And then the reason why a month later, two months later, or first of all, the reason why it could change our lives in the first few moments is because of what we just said. The love of Christ compels us. So for that one week, for, that, for those two weeks, it was that, wow, someone died for all this suffering. I can't just go and be doing anyhow. I was actually aware of the love of God. 
I was aware of it. But then what happens after a month? What happens after two months? I forget. I forget. Maybe because I'm not a part of a strong, active Christian community. Maybe because I didn't fully understand the gospel. For whatever reason and for my friends, whatever reasons, we just forget. And now that you are in a place in your life where you are taking your work with God seriously, you might not be as, this switch might not be as bad as it was in your younger years after watching Passion of the Christ. But the, the, the reasoning behind those actions are still the same. Many times we forget. Many times it's not impressed on our minds that someone died for us. Many times when you catch yourself acting in a way you should not have, saying things you should not have, doing things you are not proud of, it's because somewhere along the line, because you've not prayed as much as you should have, because you've not studied as much, because you've not meditated as much as you should have, it has gone to the back of your mind. You are not as aware of the love of Christ as you should be. And so it's a thing of, imagine if every day we take a moment in time, you wake up in the morning and you take some time to just meditate on the sacrifice of Christ for you. You take some time to just reflect, he died for me. And you sit down to think about what that really means on a day-to-day level. He died for me. What does that mean as I'm going to work? He died for me. What does that mean as I'm interacting with my co-workers? He died for me. What does that mean as I, as I interact with my family, with my friends, with my partner? He died for me. How am I supposed to live my life? Do you think you live a little differently? I do. I do. I do. I really do. And so as believers... Where these inconsistencies come from is like what from what Peter says. In the moment, we've become short-sighted. We are not as aware of the love of Christ evident in his death for us. And so its compelling nature is not as strong. And so one of the major reasons why Christian devotion and Christian community is important is because it always keeps the sacrifice of Christ at the forefront of our minds. It keeps the sacrifice of Christ at the forefront of our minds. So that at no point in time are we ever forgetful or not as aware as we should be of the love of God for us. Of the love of God for us. And if that's the only thing you get from today's teaching, it is still worth it. That God helped me to live to build an atmosphere, to build a lifestyle that is always aware of your love, that is able to constantly reflect and hang on to the love you have for me proven in your death for me. Because logically, and from what Paul is saying, if I realize that someone died for me, I will not live for myself. It's it's the natural response. It happened in secondary school when I watched Passion of the Christ. It happens when I hear a convicting message about God's love. It should happen every day. I shouldn't have to wait for to watch another movie. I should be able to, in the morning, stare myself up and say, wow, I'm living today because someone died for me. I'm going out to live for him. Amen. 
That's another, that's something else Paul is saying. So important. So important. But then he's even saying something else. There's, there's another aspect to this. To realize that he did not just die for me. He died for who? For all. And I don't take the position of the Calvinist to say all is all in Christ. No, he died for all. <laughs> Pastor Eni will probably laugh at that. <laughs> he died for all. For all. And so the same way there's an awareness that if someone died for me, I should live a certain way. There's also an awareness that if someone died for you and you don't know, I have to tell you. Imagine if after the let's say you were watching, it was, let's say it was a movie, or you you or you are that guy's wife, or you are the mother, and you see that oh the twin brother has already died, and been killed, and the other twin, the guilty twin now comes out, and they still want to kill him. You say no, you've already killed my first son. You are not going to kill the other. Haven't aren't you satisfied? What else do you? What else do you want? And so there's now an obligation that you have to make sure that no one else dies needlessly. Why? Someone has already died. Someone has already died. And so the same way I step out of my house and I'm like, Jesus died for me. I'm going to live for him. You should then also be able to say, Jesus died for my co-worker. I have to tell him or her. Jesus died for my friend. Not only should I live a certain way, I owe it to them to let them know. That's what he's saying in verse 14, that the love of Christ compels us. In fact, that is the truer context. If one died for all, all died. So now Paul is saying there are two kinds of people in this world. Now we're going to see that in verse 16. I'm looking at the time, don't worry. I don't know if we'll finish, but God help us. <laughs> There are two kinds of people in this world. Everyone is either, one, someone that realizes that Christ died for them and he changes everything. So they live for him. Or two, someone that Jesus died for but doesn't yet know. And it still changes everything because now I have to tell them. So that's what he's saying, that this is how we judge the world. This is how we see reality. I died, I know, I have to live a certain way. They died, they don't know, I have to tell them. If one died for all, then all are dead. It's just a matter of some know and are living for him. Some don't know. And we that know have an obligation to let them know. Of course, there's that weird middle ground. That is very disgusting to everyone, both spiritual and non-spiritual alike. Those that know but are not living for him. Please do not belong in that category. Those that know that he died for them but still are living like those that they don't know. That Can you start to see why it's a big deal? If you are motivated by love, if you are so aware of the love of God, then a lukewarm Christian is perhaps the most disgusting person <laughs> in, in any camp of, of, of humanity. And that's why Paul is like, I do not want you to associate with any believer that claims to be, to be a believer 
and he's adulterous, he's fornicating, he's enjoying sin. It's like, God forbid. Yes, there are people that struggle and we can come alongside them. But as far as our intents and motivations, if you truly believe Jesus died for you, you cannot but want to respond. If, if, you, if, it's, if that's not there, Paul encourages the church. He says, cut off. This is cancer. It will corrupt the entire body. How can there be someone in your community that claims to believe that someone, they died for them and is living anyhow? But in Paul's mind, it does not compute. It's like asking, what is the taste of blue? It's like, I don't get what you're asking me. I don't get what you're asking me. You say, oh, how should I handle a believer that uh, enjoys or con- consciously walks in sin? Paul is like, I don't get it. That, like, that does not make sense. Like, that's not a believer. That's not a believer. It's a different thing if you're asking me, oh, this person struggles with sin. And hey, you'll tell him, walk in the spirit. Um, brothers, bear his burdens. Take him to church. All of that. It's a whole different conversation. When you say he's been confronted and he doesn't want to change. That's an anomaly. That's 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 an abomination. <laughs> I think in Paul's words, what did he say? Anatema. <laughs> Accursed. <laughs> that's how you should respond. But on a serious note, the love of Christ should compel every single one of us. Personally, it should compel us to walk in sanctification, to walk in, in love, to, to, to love him. And then, by extension, it should compel us to minister the gospel. I hope the context is making sense. And then he goes on from there into verse 16 to then say, therefore, meaning because he died for all, because of all these things I've said, because of my perception towards the world, What he's about to say now makes sense. Now I hope it's clear. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Of course not. How would we? We regard everyone as either, are you living for Christ or are you you dead? Simple. We We no longer judge people according to the flesh. Remember what he said in verse 12. We don't boast in appearance, but in heart. So that's what he's saying. We don't judge according. It's not just about, oh, he's tall, he's rich, he's handsome. Okay. Is he live? Does he is he living for Christ? That's how we judge. Oh, I want you to meet this friend of mine. She's so such a nice person, you know, so lively. Wow, wow. As a believer, and you stop there, and that person ends up in hell. It means that your perception was skewed. You were not seen through the lens of the most important filter of all, the death of Christ. Since we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. So even Jesus, there was a time in which we saw him as a political revolutionary. We saw him as, ah, but then we're like, he's not that tall. (laughs) According to Isaiah, he's not that tall. He's not that pleasant to look at. At a point in time, we knew Jesus by his hair. We knew him by his beard. It's like, ah, beard gang. Oh, he had long flowy hair. You know, maybe five eight, just to make myself feel good. <laughs> it wasn't buff like that, so you guys don't have to work out. That's if you say, "Oh, describe Jesus to me." If you met any of his disciples, oh, who is Jesus? Oh, Jesus. Oh, he likes to wear white. You know, blue eyes. 
uh perfectly you know that's that's my jesus that's our that's our rabbi that's our master he says we no longer know him thus anymore we know him as the one who died for the world and was raised as king over all creation that's how we know him similarly we no longer know people based on just the appearance oh he makes six figures that's what else oh they are this okay what else what else what else paul is saying we we either see someone who christ died for and is living for him or someone who christ died for and does not know and that's why james you'd you'd read the book of james when we went through the journey through james and he's so upset at this like how can you a church tell someone just because they are dressed was it come and sit down at the front and then you tell someone else who is not dressed as well stay at the back like how dare you haven't you learned anything in christ that's not how we perceive one another we know people by who or what they are living for not just by appearance not just by superficiality remember the other ministers no we view the world based on what people are living for and so paul is saying if all you know about Jesus is, oh, you can tell me his favorite food, you can tell me his favorite clothes, you can tell me all, he says, you don't know him that well. You don't know him well enough. Think about that. In fact, it's it's clear that's what he's saying because Paul never saw Jesus. He never physically, he never interacted with him physically. And yet, Paul knew Jesus better than many of his biological brothers. Think about that. This guy saw Jesus growing up every day. They saw him dress up. They saw him eat. Mom, um, Mother Mary will cook food. Oh, come and eat your food. Oh. And all of them are running. Yeah, I want two pieces of chicken to me. They saw all that. They probably played with Jesus. They played soccer. Oh, two on two. They said, Jesus, pass. Now pass. <laughs> Go. I want Jesus in my team. They did all that. They all went to buy clothes together. Ah, Mary, um, mommy, please. I want this one. I want, I'm just joking. I'm bringing it to a Nigerian context in case you're not aware. But I want this one. Mom, Mary will buy clothes for all of them. Say, oh, yeah, wait now. Ah, Jesus, it's not your size now. Give me. Jesus. Brother Jesus, it's too small for you now. Give me. <laughs> they did all that. And yet, Paul can boast that I know Jesus better than many of you. Than many of you. Why? Because I know him by the eyes of the Spirit. I see him for who he truly, who he truly is. And it's the same thing in our faith. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Says, even though we, we once knew Jesus after the flesh, says, we, we, no longer. No longer. And so in our faith, in the body of Christ, that's why we say that the people that know us best, it shouldn't be your co-workers. It shouldn't be, it's, it's, it's the community that you are born. They are the ones that really know you. They know your motivations. They know your priorities. Beyond just your dress preferences, they know you. They know you. The world would be like, ah, what about, what are you drinking? I'm like, uh, I, I don't worry, I'm fine. Your brothers in Christ, they should, they should, they should know you. Like, oh, I don't get it. You have a, I'm, I'm giving you real, these are personal stories of mine. Like, oh, Ah, uh, so if you if you're in a relationship, just 
you won't let your 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 girlfriend sleep with you. <laughs> Sorry, you won't you won't stay in the same house. You save on money. I'm like, no, I can't do that. I'm like, oh, why? So you guys go on a vacation, you book two different hotel rooms. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, exactly. <laughs> I don't know what I can tell you. <laughs> I don't believe it's sex before marriage. I'm like, that's weird. Fine. You don't know me. You don't know me beyond the flesh. You won't understand. Oh, ah, you're not, uh, you're not, you're not going to take this job. I'm like, no, I don't think I am. Ah, why? Uh, I, I've, I've looked at the time requirement and it's not going to give me time for church. I'm like, ah, you know, the salary is double. Like, I, I know, like, I don't get you. Like, exactly. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm living for. You don't know my priorities. A brother in Christ would not be asking you that. If you, the moment you say, oh, uh, brother, which job did you end up getting? Oh, I chose the one that didn't pay as much. You say, ah, why now? Like, ah, based on distance, based on the workload, I won't, I won't really have time for to serve in church anymore. Like, oh, okay, uh, I'm, I'm glad you made the right decision. I know it's hard. I'll be praying for you. That is someone that knows you. That is someone that knows you. It's sad where there's now a problem where you are not acting like you should. And so, the world actually knows the real you. So we say, ah, we're looking for brother, brother James. Like, ah, brother, what do you mean? Like, ah, he goes to church. Eh, James goes to church. The same James that was with us last night. I'm like, eh, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. We belong to a kingdom where we look beyond the physical. I would read a, 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 a short phrase from one of the commentaries. I don't know which one because I didn't reference it, so I apologize. It's probably that Barnes or BBC. But it says, in other words, it was one thing to know Jesus as a next-door neighbor in the village of Nazareth or even as an earthly messiah. And it's quite another thing to know the glorified Christ who is at the right hand of God at this present time. We know the Lord Jesus more intimately and more truly today as he is revealed to us through the word by his spirit than those who knew him sorry than those knew him who judged him simply according to human appearances when he was on earth have you thought about that that there are people many people in fact many of us right here on this zoom call know jesus better than the same people he walked the streets with have you thought about that? And it's, 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 it doesn't just stop at Jesus. It's one thing to see Jesus as the glorified Messiah of the world. But then it should translate. How do you see your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you just see them as the person that works a lone-paying job that attends your church? That's very bad of you. Do you see him as someone who has been bought by the price of Jesus, someone who is able to edify you, strengthen you as your brother for eternity, now you are starting to see things the right way. We know no one according to the flesh. We know no one according to the flesh. Because he died for all, our perception of humanity has changed. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on to the very popular verse which i believe now makes sense second corinthians 5 17 we might end here we might go on i'm not sure but 
it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are or have become new. So now, I don't even have to explain it based on if you've been here for the past three weeks. You already know what Paul is saying. You know why he's saying what he's saying and you know exactly what he's saying. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. We don't see him as just that random person that does this and has this hobby and works here. No. We see him as someone who Christ died for and now lives. That's how we see him or her. Old things have passed away. What are those old things? He says, all things have become new. What has become new? Because I remember vividly that when I received the life of Christ, my skin color did not change. Some of you, when you received the life of Christ, you did not lose a few pounds. You might have wished. He said, God, as I receive you into my heart, take away. As you take away the stony heart, take away a few pounds, Lord. That tummy fat, take it away. As I receive the spirit, I also receive a few inches in my spine. Oh God, that did not happen. <laughs> As I receive you into my heart, I receive a few thousand dollars, Lord. That did not happen, unfortunately. Lord, as you are taking away the stony heart, take away that annoying pimple on my forehead. It stayed right there. So what was new in Christ? And what are the old things that have passed away? It's the very thing he just said. We know no one after the flesh. So what is new about the man in Christ is something that is not of the flesh. I think that's clear. <laughs> right? What is new in the man in Christ? It's the Spirit of God. What is new about the man in Christ is the fact that, first of all, he now lives. Or she now lives. That's the first thing. What is new about the person in Christ is that he or she no longer lives for themselves. And so, I mean, think about it. People are typically defined by their worldview and their ambitions. Meaning, what do you believe about the world and what do you want to do with your life? To so a person whose ambition is just to have fun, you only live once, you can tell by the kind of life they live. Friday night, you know where they're going to be. They would probably wake up at like 9 on Saturday. You know exactly what they're going to do. You know Sunday morning where they're going to be. So much so that if someone's worldview, ambitions and priorities change, it's as good as saying, I don't know you anymore. I mean, think about that. If one of your closest friends all of a sudden comes and says, this is how I see the world. This is what I want to do in my life. And these are my priorities. It's, if they are serious about it, they will be a totally different person. Totally different person. And that's what he's saying. What is new about the man in Christ, about the woman in Christ, in today's gender-inclusive world? <laughs> it is that, number one, have been raised to life by the Spirit. And number two, my worldview, my ambitions, my priorities have changed. Before, maybe I was living to be Forbes 30 under 30. 
now I just want to please God. And so you're like, ah, bro, how far now? I'm like, I just want to please God. That's a new creation. You might still achieve for 30 under 30. Why not? But it will be for an entirely different motive. And you might not, but you will not, it's it's you you won't count it as a loss because you're like, it's worth abandoning that selfish goal of mine for the cross. It's worth it. That's what makes you new. Says old things have passed away. What has passed away? My old my, my, my old way of seeing the world, my old ambitions, my priorities, my skewed worldview that the world has put on me by virtue of exposure to society, those things are gone. My sin nature, those things are gone. It says all things have become new. Again, what are the things that are new? My ambitions, my priorities. The way I live the world, who I live for, I was once living for myself. No longer. No longer. No longer. That's what he's saying. That the same way we no longer know Christ after the flesh, because that reality is done away with. It's the same way we don't know the man in Christ after the flesh. That part of him has passed away. We have a new identity or perception of him that is rooted in Christ that is rooted in Christ don't forget he was saying all of this again also as a backdrop of verse 12 that we are not those who boast in appearance we boast in the heart it's going to take a lot more than wealth and eloquence to earn my approval who are you really who are you who are you and so there's that responsibility on every believer to look at yourself in Christ. When you say, when you say, I've received the life of Christ, what does that mean? When you wake up every morning, who are you? Who is Buki Abdul now that she is in Christ? Who is Daisy now that she is in Christ? Who is that? The Bible says I'm new. What does that mean? Do I actually act like a new creature? Or is there, is, is there barely any difference? Those are the questions to ask yourself. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you really consider yourself a new creation? New creation or new creature? <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's not, I'm no longer trying to build. I'm not caught up in building an identity for myself that I can find security in. I'm no longer trying to make a name for Daniel Babala. Daniel Babala is dead long ago, many years ago. If the world wants to know me, where should they look? To Christ. That's where you will find me. You want to find my ambitions, my priorities, what gets me going on a Monday morning? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And once again, it's verses like this that A.W. Tozer, I believe, unless it's Spurgeon, I can't remember which, talked about, he uses the phrase the legal and the vital. I like the simpler, what is true in your spirit and what is true in your everyday walk. This is a classic verse of things that are true in our spirit 
But we don't always see it on a day-to-day level. Many of you here now, if I if I start to say, oh, think of that believing friend of yours, that there was a day you, you say, this this cannot be a new This is a Tokumbo. It's <laughs> not here, Robert. The way you are acting, you are, this is not, this cannot, there's nothing new about you. In fact, you are very old. <laughs> you are very old. You're acting like that. The person I used to know 10 years ago. Why? Maybe it was a bad day. Maybe they have not spent as much time as they should with God. Maybe for whatever reason. Maybe a moment of weakness. But then it's the same thing for ourselves. There are some of those says, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has those days. <laughs> everybody does have those days. But it's like, ah, God, I'm sorry. I just, I, I could have done better today. And that is why we pray. That is why we meditate. That is why we fellowship. That what is true of us in the spirit, how God sees us actually becomes how we live our everyday life. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6 as I start to round up. Romans 6. Romans 6 verse 6. He says, let me start from verse 5. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we would be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's the same thing he said. If So if he died for all and we received that, then we would also be raised with him. But then he says in verse 6, knowing this, knowing this, is it something you know? Is it something you know? The word that ginosko, it means to be aware of something. Are you aware that what? Our old man was crucified with him. That's what he said, new creature. Old things have passed away. Our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin may be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. And then he goes on. He says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. That's what he's been saying. He says, if one died, all died. That those who live. So those who live are those who recognize, who realize, who know, who receive the fact that they have died. And it says, if you have truly died, you are free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, Romans 6 verse 8, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death that he died, He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's your testimony. That in receiving the death of Christ, I died to sin once and for all. I may not see it every day, but it's true. I am dead to sin. That is what the word of God says about me. That is what is true of me in the spirit. That is what I enforce every waking moment of my life in prayer and in intentionality. I am dead to sin. Not only am I dead to sin, I live to God. That's what he said in 2 Corinthians as well, that those who live, henceforth no longer live unto themselves. The same thing. Verse 11, another emphasis. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves. The word reckon is the word logizomai. Logizomai. 
It means to take an inventory of something. I would answer both your questions, Onye. To take an inventory, to estimate. It's, it's, it's a practical word. It literally means, let's say you have a room full of, of, of books. What does logizomai mean? It means to count. If you say, how many books are in your house? Like, oh, I'm not sure. But can you verify? So it's an accounting term. Oh, I want to take an inventory. Then I start to count. Oh, there are 65 books in my house. There's 65 books in my house. So he says, reckon yourself to be dead. So take time to acknowledge the fact that I am dead to sin. But I am alive unto God through Jesus. And then what's the application? Verse 12. Let not. I like that. Let not. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So it is possible to be dead to sin but still give sin an expression in your life. And Paul is saying, you have a responsibility. You are free from it. You now have a choice. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5. You are a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become new. Live like a new creature. Don't give sin a place in your life. Don't give self. Don't Self has died. Don't allow it come back. Whenever you catch yourself acting besides yourself, <laughs> call yourself to say, this is not me. This is not me. You're watching something you should not watch. This is not me. You're saying stuff you should not say. This is not me. If you need help, Get help. But don't for a moment believe that that's you. Who are you? You are a new creature defined by the death and resurrection of Christ. Final verse for today. I'm not going to explain this verse. We'll talk about, we'll start from here next week. It says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Right? In verse 19, it says he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Some translations will say the message of reconciliation. And that's what we're going to start with next week. We're going to talk about the man, the message, and the ministry of reconciliation. Because Paul spends time defining who this man or woman, this person is that has been reconciled. Then he's going to talk about the message of reconciliation. And to make it clear that that man that has believed in the message of reconciliation also has a responsibility to proclaim, has received that ministry. So we're going to talk about, that's what we're going to spend time on. So from verse 18 to verse 21, the man, the message, and the ministry. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'll, I'll pause here for today, but I, I hope, I hope it's blessed you. I hope um, you've learned or been reminded of very important things. Um, I'll take a few questions and uh, I'll pray and we'll call it a day. So the first question was, if you died, you're free from sin. Does this apply to unbelievers? No. Well, yes and no. It is, it, it, it's, there's a theological way it's described, but because I suck at remembering theological terms, the idea is, 
what Christ has done is true for everyone, but is efficacious in those who have received it by faith. And that's why it says you are saved by grace through faith. What does that mean? You are saved by grace. Like everyone is saved by grace, but the way you receive that grace is through faith. And so those who haven't placed faith in the sacrifice of Christ is the equivalent of people who have a million dollars locked up in a house, but have simply for whatever reason not opened the door and walked into it or not activated. It's like you get a card, a prepaid card of $5,000, but you've not activated it. If you swipe, nothing is going to happen. And so the way faith is our access into the grace of God. And so, yes, on a, on a on a certain level it is strong that's why paul said we believe that if one died for all all died and that's where the urgency for ministry comes from because this is something they already have they just don't know it our responsibility is to tell them what jesus has already done for them that's what we're doing in the gospel that's what we're doing in the gospel that's what he says in verse 19 god was past tense was in christ reconciling the world not the church, the world to himself, not imputing the world's trespasses, but it's only for those who believe and have received. So that's the answer to your question. So no, until you believe, it is not true in your life, Um, which is the same idea of the love of Christ. Until you are aware of it, it is true, but you cannot respond to that reality. Um, So that's, that's, uh, that's for that question. And then, oh yeah, so I guess it's the same thing. So if one died, all died. Jesus died for everyone saved and unsaved, but only those who have received that can can believe and respond to that reality. All right. Um, I hope that answers your question. Any other question before we round off? So I would assume there aren't any questions. Of course, if you ever have questions, you can reach out to me. Um, I guess someone can, any one of you, please, if you have my number, please put it in the chat. If you ever want to ask me any question, um, just reach out. I'll get back to you in a few, in less, one or two business days. Me too, I'm like FedEx. (laughs) But as soon as I can, I'll definitely respond. And also, if you want to be added to the uh, broadcast the broadcast um, list where I send out the posters and announcements about us meeting and stuff like that, just send me a text as well. I would add you there. But I hope we've been blessed today. I hope we... Catherine, you want to say something? Okay. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're... Sorry about that. Sorry, I didn't mean to. That's fine. That's fine. Thank you. So yes, I I um I hope we've learned if you've been reminded. And I beg you, again, last week's teaching, this week's teaching, there are things that we all probably know as believers. The issue is in the day-to-day application. So I beg you, take out time. Let this be something that you can say of yourself, that I wake up every morning and I am reminded of the love of Christ for me. And that love is rooted in his sacrifice and it propels me to both live and minister to the world around me. That should be your testimony. That should be your testimony. That as we go on this journey of sanctification, you find yourself more and more responding to the love of Christ, more and more sharing this message with the world 
more and more consistent and grounded in your experience as a new creation. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you because every time we reflect on the cross, it motivates us afresh. And we are grateful. We really are. There are times we have not we have not acted as we should. We haven't responded as we should. We haven't lived our lives for you. And of that, we are deeply sorry. And Lord, even now, both everyone here and everyone who would listen to this teaching, we receive grace afresh to live lives worthy of your name, to get up every day and respond to the sacrifice of the cross. Let our lives be defined by these verses that we, the Lord, that we would say confidently that the love of Christ compels us because we judge that if one died for all, then we all died. That we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but that we live for the one who died and was raised. That we would be able to say that because we are in Christ, we indeed are new creations. That old things have passed away. The things we once held dear, we've let it go. All things have become new. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, we have prayed. Amen, 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 amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. As usual, thank you all for your time, um, for making it a commitment to be here on a Saturday morning. I appreciate it, and it shows that I'm not wasting my time. <laughs> so I appreciate that. And for everyone who listens to the podcast as well, much larger group there that I might never meet. I appreciate you all. Um, it's it's a privilege and a and a huge honor to communicate the word of God. Uh, I hope you have a great week. Um, let me share my screen. We'll share the benediction, and then if anyone is joining for the first time, we would love to say hi say greet my wife <laughs> so i'm sharing my screen i hope you can see it uh the benediction so graciously prepared to us by buki and aya <laughs> all right let's feel free to unmute yourself let's read together one two go i am a diligent student and doer of the word i am a teacher of the word the word is profitable for my growth by the word I am corrected by the word. I am trained in righteousness. And in the word, my spirit rejoices. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 All right, people. I love you all. Have a great week ahead. Live out what you have learned today. In Jesus' name. Is anyone joining us for the first time? All right, now we've come to the end of today's episode and I hoped that it blessed you in many more ways than one. And if it did, I want you to do a couple things for me. The first thing is I want you to take out some time to pray and to meditate over the things you've learned in today's teaching and to see how you can begin to apply it to your life, starting from this week. Because it's important we remember we're not just to be hearers, but doers of the word as well. The second thing I would appreciate is to think about someone you can send this to. 
If this teaching has blessed you, then pass it on to a friend, to a co-worker, to someone you know who needs to hear this. And finally, don't forget to leave a like, subscribe, leave a comment if you're feeling up to it. And I'll catch you in the next episode. God bless you. Bye.